to understand it, to be convicted by your word, and after this class, to be encouraged to speak the truth in love. We pray, Lord, that you would equip this whole church to counsel, not just a few, but that every believer would be ready with your word to help others through their difficulties and through their sin. You are worthy of such a church, Almighty King. So do that work by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. All right. So in chapter 11 of Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, it's called The Goals of Speaking the Truth in Love. We've been working our way through his paradigm of biblical counseling or personal ministry. Speak, I'm sorry, love, know, speak, do. And we've covered loving and knowing and now we're going to talk about speaking. <clears throat> we're not going to, because we only have two Sundays left, we're not going to end up finishing the whole book, but uh, I'd highly recommend, as always, to go find that and, and finish the rest of the book as we go through it uh, that we didn't get to cover. So in this, he opens with a story of, of, a, of a sister named Sally. Of course, he renames all of his acquaintances and people in his church, but he was at that time a principal of a Christian school and had called them in for a conference and she was immediately on the defensive when she first came in. And she kept on saying how he doesn't love her daughter, dot, 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 when as it turns out, he really wasn't trying to confront her or, or really trying to say that the daughter needed to change anything. He was just trying to figure out ways that, that they could work together to help her out. But he points out, Tripp points out that we have this same kind of Sally type of uh, mentality when it comes to confrontation. Speaking the truth when it comes to like rebuke is not something that we look forward to, right? Like so if I uh, texted Caleb, for example, said, Caleb, hey, I need you to come in so I can rebuke you. He wouldn't go be like, hey, I just got some great news. You know, Pastor Ed called me in so he can rebuke me. I haven't been rebuked in weeks. Like I'm, I'm so grateful for this. We recognize it's difficult, right? That there are difficult conversations, and it's difficult oftentimes to speak the truth in love. But rebuke is a biblical concept. It's a good thing. Rebuke is a good thing. And that kind of ties into what we're talking about of speak. Love, no, speak, do. We're going to be rooted in Leviticus 19, verses 15 through 18 today. Leviticus 19, verses 15 through 18. This is what the word of God says here. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So again, very, very powerful passage for us in this subject of confrontation, which leads us to the first kind of header, subheader under the introduction in your outline, which says this. Confrontation is rooted in a submission to the first great commandment, to the first great commandment. So, it's in Matthew 22:37, but just off the cuff, who can tell us what is the greatest commandment according to Matthew 22:37? 37? 
Yeah, Mike. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So our passage tells or implies for us strongly that rebuking others, confronting others with their sin, is rooted primarily in this commandment to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with our mind, and our strength. In Leviticus, we see this often over and over again in this passage. I am the Lord your God. That's in verse 10. Uh, verse 12, I am the Lord. Verse 14, I am the Lord. 15, 16, sorry, I am the Lord, right? And verse 18, I am the Lord. So we have this, this constant repetition that what he is telling them to do is rooted in the fact that he is Yahweh, their God. So confrontation, confronting each other, is an act of submission to him. Talk about that. Why is confronting each other an act of submission to God? David. Nice hair, by the way. Looks good. Yeah, so if our, our authority is first God and not them. And how would confronting somebody demonstrate that, David? Amen. So to shorten, uh, to summarize what David said, essentially it's, it's because whatever we're confronting them on, if we're doing it right, is not based on what we think and what we've decided. It's based on what God has said. And so we are acting on his behalf from his word to kind of call somebody back to biblical faithfulness, or rather, more importantly, faithfulness to God, right? So good, good, good eye on there, David. So confrontation is an act of submission to him. If we fail to confront each other, that really can be a form of idolatry, okay? So if we should confront somebody and we don't, what might be the other things that we prefer rather than obeying God? Yeah. Comfort. Ooh. Comfort. Oh, yeah. Nobody likes, con I mean, well, that's not true. Some people don't, many people don't like confrontation, right? Uh, so it's more comfortable to not. Right? So what do, oftentimes, what do Christians do instead because they prefer their comfort rather than honoring God in confronting somebody? What do we tend to do? Just begin to secretly resent that person. Yeah, so we grow in resentment and bitterness toward that person instead. What else might somebody do? Let's say they have, like, legitimate grievances against someone in church and, or, yeah. What, what, might, what do you often see people do? Yeah. Just leave. just leave. It's easier to just leave the church than to confront the situation, right? So the idol there would be comfort. Um, there may be other idols of the relationship. They, they don't wanna lose their relationship because they love that, having that friend so much that they don't wanna honor God by confronting sin because they don't want to lose that relationship. Could, could parents do that with their kids, for example? They, they don't want to push their kids away so they don't confront their kids on sin, right? So yeah, there's, there's different things. Whatever it is, 
If we know we ought to confront someone with our sin and we don't, it's because there's an idol that's getting in the way of that. But really, the, the quality of our love for our neighbor is an indicator of our love for God. It, the more you love your neighbor, the more you're showing that you really love God. Because loving neighbor is an outflow of loving God. Amen? So, love for God really should be the foundation for truth speaking. What, whatever it is, uh, that, that should be, whatever we're trying to do, that should be our motivation. Because we love God. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because I love God. Why are you confronting someone because of their sin? Because I love God. That's ultimately what we should do. There's other false foundations for why we should want to. What, what are some of those? Besides love for God, what might be some other false foundations for confronting people? If you're not doing it out of love for God, what else might you be doing it for? Mm. Yeah, hypocrisy, because you see someone sin and you're like, well, that, uh, I struggle with that, but I'm not going to address it on me. I'm going to address it on that person instead. Yeah, David. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's your pride. Maybe you were the one who got hurt by their sin, and so instead of rebuking them or confronting them because you love them, it's because you love yourself. It's because you, you were hurt and you wanted to get back at them by calling them out, right? Yeah, that's definitely, it could be a false foundation for sure. So the, again, it's rooted in first the submission to the first great commandment, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's also rooted in the second great command. That's our next bullet point in the outline. Confrontation is rooted in the second great command. What does Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine say is the second greatest command? Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, he's not making up a new ethic. This, he's quoting scripture, right? He's saying that that's the most important commandment. Then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Same thing. He's quoting Old Testament scripture to say that that's the second greatest commandment. So how is rebuke an act of loving your neighbor? How is rebuking someone an an act of love toward them? Yeah, Andrew. Amen. So you're loving them not as they are, you're loving them as who they can be, and, and you're trying to help them grow to that person, so you're loving them in that way. Other thoughts? How is rebuke loving somebody? Or I should say can be, because you can also rebuke unlovingly. But how is biblical rebuke loving your neighbor? Mm-hmm. It's pulling them out of the fire, like Jesus says. Yeah, pulling them out of the fire, right? So there is, again, there is a sense in which God is the one who ultimately preserves our salvation And yet he does it through the means of brothers and sisters yanking each other sometimes out of the fire. He uses us as means to his perfect ends in that way. It's also love for neighbor because is sin ever the best thing for that person? Never, never. It may give them a temporary satisfaction, but in the end, 
It's not what's best for them. And so if you love them, you're going to help them to not turn to sin, but instead to turn to the Lord. Turn to him in faithfulness and enjoy it and delight in obedience rather than remaining in their sin. So it's an act of loving neighbor. We live in a, in a culture where tolerance is love, right? If you don't tolerate somebody's uh, sexual preference, what are you considered in this world? A bigot and you're a homophobe, another H word, hater, right? You're, just, you're filled with hate. It's not hate. Just because we think that you should remain faithful to God, that's not hate. But that's, that's the world we live in now. If you don't tolerate things, you're a hater. Uh, if, you're, if you're not polite or if you're not nice about something, then you're a hater. Okay? But sometimes love means being intolerant to somebody's sin. It means sometimes speaking things that people will interpret as unkind. We should always speak gently. We should always speak kindly. But what we're saying can very much be taken as, in the world's eyes, unkind and intolerant. But that's what love often looks like, okay? Silence can be unloving. Silence can be unloving. Sometimes we think, I'm going to love them by not saying anything, which can really be an out for us, right? Sometimes we think, I'm just going to be so patient and so forbearing, I'm not going to call them out on this particular sin. But oftentimes what we're doing is we're just, we're loving ourselves in that situation, and what we're doing is failing to love that person. We fa- if we fail to confront people on their sin, we may very well be loving ourselves too much. Now, what I'm not saying is nitpick at everything your brothers and sisters do. But what we are saying is be careful to confront people when they, where they need to be confronted. Help them to see their sin so that they can turn to the Lord and delight in him rather than be stuck in disobedience. Which brings us to our next point. Confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Every relationship. In Leviticus 19, if you're still there, look at verse 17. So you shouldn't hate your brother, right? Who should you reason frankly with? Look at the next word there. Should say reason frankly or rebuke who? Your neighbor your neighbor. And we may be tempted to ask, well, who is my neighbor, right? And when somebody asks Jesus that, who is my neighbor? He gives them the story about uh, the, the Samaritan. And so that, that completely throws off what, what he thought. He was thinking, well, yeah, but my neighbor is my fellow Jews. But he was showing them, no, your neighbor is mankind, right? So we have a responsibility to confront people in every relationship. That's what the Savior did. He confronted people on their sin, even if they weren't following him. He confronted the Pharisees. And um, what did John the Baptist die for? Remember? He got beheaded. Why? It wasn't church discipline. Like he was confronting who? He was confronting King Herod and Herodias. And he ended up losing his head literally because of that. Uh, but gaining, of course, the kingdom. So, again, this is our responsibility to everyone, not just, because we might think, I don't know that person well enough. We're not, we don't have that kind of relationship. Well, Jesus and the Pharisees didn't have that kind of relationship, right? John the Baptist and Herod didn't have that kind of relationship. So we can't hide behind the whole, I just, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a relationship with that person, right? We have a responsibility to everyone, confrontation. And verse 17 also tells us, 
that we actually may be sinning or actually are sinning if we don't. Look at the end of verse 17. Lest you incur sin because of him. Okay? You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Other translations, uh, who else has a different translations besides the ESV here? Looking at you, legacy guys. <laughs> Do you have it with you? Because you may surely reprove your neighbor. You may surely reprove your neighbor. And so, not bear sin because of him. And, no, and so not bear sin because of him. So if you don't confront your neighbor, you are actually bearing sin because of him. Why is that the case, by the way? If you don't confront someone that you're also sinning potentially because of that. I mean, don't we, don't we have some sort of like moral uh, anger when someone who knows about a shooting, like a mass shooting, who knew that it was going to happen, did nothing about it? Aren't we like, well, they didn't pull the trigger. Like, don't we have some sort of like, I can't believe they didn't do anything, right? Am I the only one who feels that way often if, it, if, if we hear about that? So we, you have a responsibility to not be complicit in someone's sin with your silence, if you know that someone's in sin and you're silent about it, you potentially are now also sinning because of that person, okay? Now, again, there are wrong ways to do this. What are some wrong ways to confront somebody over their sin? David. Harshly. Harshly. Good. One of the fruits of the Spirit is not harshness. It's gentleness. What else? What are some wrong ways to confront people? Ah, good. So publicly, if, especially if uh, it's not necessary, we see sometimes public rebuke because they publicly sinned, right? So Jesus would publicly rebuke the Pharisees because of their public sin and, vice, and anything like that. But typically speaking, the biblical principle is keep rebuke as small as you possibly can, as, as, as much as possible, right? Good. So harshly in public, uh, self-righteously, with an attitude that, like, that you're somehow better than that person, because you don't sin in that same way that they do. What's another one? Another wrong way to rebuke somebody. Hmm? I saw you mouth something. No? In anger, right? Yeah. If you're doing it in anger, it's likely that you're also sinning in your rebuke of them. So you need to check your own heart as well with that. Good. So yeah, there are wrong ways to do this. This isn't a license to just start going out and start bashing people and starting a discernment blog or something like that. There are, there are right ways, there are biblical ways to rebuke people, okay? Uh, also, rebuke should be mutual. We should have relationships where you, you, you're rebuking each other, right? It's not just like a one-way I'm just here to tell you about all the sins that you have. A good godly relationship is one where you rebuke each other because of your sins, right? That's, I mean, if we were to just boil it down to, let's say, a, a small family unit, a healthy relationship is where, when appropriate, husband and wife are rebuking each other gently and lovingly and kindly over their sin. They're doing the same thing for their children, right? If they didn't confront each other over their sin, we would start to question whether they really loved each other, right? And it's the same thing with the church. It's supposed to be mutual rebuke for each other, and that's out of love, okay? So 
Confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Next point. Confrontation is meant to be more of a lifestyle than an unusual event. See, that's, this is the issue, is that uh, if confrontation is rare, then it's awkward whenever it happens. Isn't that right? If you don't have relationships with people where you are helping each other with sin constantly, then it's going to be awkward when you bring it up. Uh, and, and so we want to create a culture where we're helping each other with this regularly. And that can start in your own homes. And it can outflow from out of your homes. But maybe you kind of have to reestablish that, right? So um, if that means, you know, every week, let's say I agree, uh, I'm leading Megs, and I say, Megs, every week let's just take inventory, and we'll do this with Alora as she's growing up. And let's just talk about, you know, ways that each of us can be more faithful and what you see in me and what I see in you and, and ways that I could be more faithful to the Lord. Do you think if we set that up that it would become less and less awkward over time? Yeah, yeah, it should. Because now it's a culture, it's part of the, our lifestyle. It's not just like whenever, you know, every three months it's a confrontation. It's like this is something that we're doing all the time, okay? So it's meant to be more of a lifestyle than an unusual event. And we, the next point is this. We fail to confront in love because we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. We fail to confront in love because we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. Well, that seems like a strong word, hatred, for not confronting somebody. But look at verse 17. The middle of the verse says, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, or um, as a legacy says, instead of um, reason frankly, what does it say there? You shall reprove. The word is literally rebuke, but rebuke, and I can tell because there's, there's some like discomfort in the room whenever I use the word rebuke because rebuke has a connotation of just like shouting at somebody, right? That's not the case. Rebuke is simply reproving, correcting someone because of their sin, which can be done very kind-heartedly, okay? But if you don't do it, it's hatred, which is like, ow, is that true? So the verse 17 in the middle says, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor or you shall rebuke your neighbor but the first part of the verse says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. So the opposite of rebuking your neighbor is hating your brother in your heart. It's a passive form of hatred. Not saying anything to that guy, but not saying something to him is a passive form of hatred, okay? It can be passive hatred. And then there's we fail to confront because we have yielded to more active forms of hatred. That the ne- that's the next bullet point. We fail to confront because we have yielded to more active forms of hatred. In the surrounding verses, you can see what is uh, active hatred towards your neighbor instead of uh, reasoning frankly with them. Look at a verse 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. In verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So instead of reasoning with them frankly or reproving them or rebuking them, some of the other things that we are want to do is do vengeful things towards that person, whether that's the silent treatment or doing worse things than even the silent treatment, or gossip. It's a lot easier to talk about other people to other people 
than it is to confront them with their sin. Hey, you really need to pray for so-and-so because, man, they, they're just so angry all the time. And, man, they, they, they sinned against me so bad. I'm not going to say anything, but you just need to pray for them. Right? So gossip. Gossip is another way. Slandering somebody is another way. And then um, taking revenge is another way. So these are more active forms of hatred instead of confronting the person the way that we should. Our relationships display God's love. This is why this is so important. Our relationships with each other and even our, the way that we act towards unbelievers is a reflection of God's love for us. And also, for Christians, it's a display of unity. Remember from previous um, studies that our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ is meant to be a reflection of the unity of the Godhead. That's in the, in the, the high priestly prayer, right? That they would be united as you and I are one. That they would be one as you and I are one. That's huge. So that's why confrontation is important because it continues to bring love and unity into relationships. Next bullet point. Confrontation flows out of a recognition of our identity as the children of God. So remember, throughout this passage, God's been repeating, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And, and whenever you see the, the word with, again, small caps, L-O-R-D, in other words, the L is big and then the O-R-D are smaller but still capitalized, what is that saying again? What is that representative of? His, his covenant name, I am Yahweh. I am, the, I am the God who made a covenant with you. I'm the one who gave this name to you. He's repeating it. This is why you should treat this, act this way towards each other is because of my relationship to you. And if we bring that into the new covenant, we are children of God. See what love the Father has had for us that we should be called children of God and we are. So this is a reminder for us. I am the Lord. Implied in this, I'm your father. You are my children. And so therefore act this way. We have to remember who our lives belong to. And if we remember who our lives belong to, then we're going to be more willing to confront biblically and lovingly. Next one is this. Proper biblical confrontation is never motivated by impatience, frustration, hurt, or anger. You don't want to confront in a way that is purposely going to push the person away from you. How can confrontation actually be a tool for preserving our relationships? How can confrontation actually help us preserve our relationships rather than bust them up? Lucretia. Amen. So in your confrontation, you're, you're showing them how much God loves them. You're also, I'm just tacking onto this, that you're showing them how much you love them, that you'd be able to, to bring that, and it would bring your relationship closer. Yeah, Andrew.
Amen. So Andrew's just bringing up something we said earlier about how if you don't confront, you can become bitter towards that person. You can continue to drive a wedge between you instead of having a difficult conversation of confrontation that will help you to start building the positive aspects of your relationship again. And honestly, like, who can attest to this? Like, when you go through difficult times with people that you actually grow closer to them. Yeah, right? I mean, if you haven't, try it. It actually works out very well. That when you have difficult conversations with each other and you make peace and you reunite, it just strengthens your bonds even more. Which is why in Matthew, Jesus says, uh, if, if, if you have something, if your brother sins against you, go and bring his fault to him one-on-one. But it also says, Jesus also says elsewhere, that if you are at the altar and you know that somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go make it right with them. Okay? So because confrontation or difficult conversations can actually bring more unity, and that should be the design of your confronting someone. Next one is this. Confrontation does not force a person to deal with you, but places him before the Lord. So again, this is another motivation for you to confront because you love someone. It's not about you. It's not about, hey, you wronged me. You need to fix it right with me. It's because you know that they've sinned against God. And the most loving thing you can do is confront them with the fact that they have sinned against God. Megan is already telling Elora this, right? When Elora disobeys her, yes, she gets discipline, but it's explained to Elora, this is happening because you have not obeyed God. You've disobeyed God in not listening to me, and now you need Jesus because of this, right? So that this is what love is. You show them how they, they need to be confronted before the Lord, all right? Next thing, biblical confrontation means starting with your own heart, starting with your own heart. Other sins can affect us, right? So if you're trying to help somebody with anger, who eventually might that anger be directed toward? To you, right? And if you're not ready for that, then you may strike back in anger and you may make things worse and you're sinning now. They're sinning and you're sinning as well. So we need to recognize that other sins affect us as well. And we need to examine ourselves before, not before, but as we confront someone because of their sin, okay? In the next part of your outline, it says, if I do not start with my own heart, I will tend to, and here's the a list of things that we will tend to do if we don't start with our own hearts. Turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. Um, I won't ask for any exam, personal examples of when that's happened to you, but uh, I can remember at another church that I was at, um, one of the brothers uh, impregnated one of the sisters they were dating, that doesn't excuse it, but um, he, he decided not to continue that relationship, okay? Um, and so several of the brothers pulled him aside and pretty much like in anger told him that this was, that he's nothing, right? That he, basically he walked away not feeling very loved by these brothers. So um, they took a moment of ministry, they made it into a moment of anger, and actually pushed, the per, pushed that brother even further away and not gave it an opportunity to continue to gently rebuke him. They took this as a, hey, you need a man up conversation, okay? Rather than, listen, like, you're, you're, you are now rebelling against the Lord. You need to make this right. You need to marry her. You need to take care of this child, right? And in love, do that, not, in, not of anger, okay? 
So we can turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. Oh, we can feel awful, we can feel awful justified about that. Of course I have a right to be angry. This is righteous anger, right? Yeah, yeah you, you can have righteous anger, but you can still, in your righteous anger, bear the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, okay? You never have to, out of your anger for sin, bear the fruit of hell, okay? You can always bear the fruit of the Spirit even when you are biblically angry. The other thing that we can do if we don't start with our own hearts is personalize what is not personal. Personalize what is not personal. Um, Sometimes we can take offense too easily about what somebody says towards us when we're trying to help them. And yeah, sometimes they do sin. Sometimes someone you're helping may sin against you in particular as you're trying to help them. But then if you take it into a moment of, now I'm offended, instead of focusing on the issue at hand, then again, uh, you are now taking yourself out of a helpful position. We need to recognize that what's going on with a person in front of you, their vertical life is more important than their horizontal offenses towards you. Like your concern for them is their being right with God and less about whether they're treating you the way they should be treating you. That's why you gotta check your own heart when you're helping somebody through something difficult. The next thing that we can do if we don't start with our own hearts is be adversarial in your approach. I, I tell counselees this very often, right? Especially when there's a conflict between two people. Brother, sister, it is never you versus you. It is always you too versus the sin, versus Satan. If you're, if you're both Christians, you are on the same side. And you can, we can forget that if we don't check our own hearts. So if somebody sins against us and we're confronting them and we don't have the, the right mindset of we're on the same side. My, my beef is not with him. My enemy is Satan. My enemy is demons. Our common enemy is our flesh, okay? If you don't approach it with that mindset, then you're gonna go in as adversaries rather than as allies. So you gotta check your heart with that too. The other thing that you can do if you don't start with your own heart is you can confuse your opinion with God's will. Confuse your opinion with God's will. You can start to correct someone for stuff that you just prefer not. You just don't prefer things. But in the end, that's not what we're here for. We're not here to impose our preferences on people, right? We're here, we're here to hold up the mirror of God's word to them. Here's what God's word says about your situation. But if you don't check your heart, then you, you're gonna be injecting your opinion instead of God's will. And then the last thing on that list is you'll settle for quick solutions that don't address the heart. Um, one of those is just to end the relationship. That's the quick, quick and easy way to fix the, com- the issues that we're having. Let's just end the relationship. We'll end our friendship. We'll just agree to disagree. And that's not biblical. What's that? Where's one? Yeah, where does agree to disagree in the Bible, right? I mean, unless we're talking about things that are really matters of conscience, like uh, the, the biblical examples would be, can we eat food, sacrifice to idols? Do we need to celebrate the festivals and so on? Yep.
Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. And honestly, I don't, the, the passage doesn't really tell us whether that was a right thing for them to do or not. It simply reports that, I'm sorry if you didn't hear it, Paul and Barnabas end up disagreeing sharply and deciding to, because Paul does not want to deal with Mark anymore. I don't know whether Mark, whether Paul was being biblically patient. I don't know, right? But he didn't want to deal with Mark anymore. And so uh, Barnabas did. So they disagreed sharply. And then Paul and Silas went one way and Barnabas and Mark went another way. God used that to bring the gospel out even further. But whether that was the right thing is, I think, it doesn't say it in the text itself, right? We have to kind of make our analysis and do our best. But um, yeah, so I guess the, the point is that these difficult relationships are ordained. We have to remember that as well. So think of that person that you have the hardest time getting along with. Don't say their name, please, okay? That relationship has been ordained by God himself. And God is using that relationship to make you more like his son, to develop a Christ-like patience in you. So don't abandon that relationship. Lean into it. Love that person as you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, okay? So we need to start with our own hearts. It also starts in the next part of our outline. Biblical confrontation starts with the right goals, with the right goals. What are some of the wrong goals that we might have for confronting people? What are some of the wrong goals? Yeah, you want an apology, right? You, you want to be vindicated because they wronged you. Good, what else? What are some other wrong goals? Amen. You know, I was just thinking through that, Sheila. It's not wrong necessarily to want to make your life easier and therefore confront somebody on it. More peaceful, right? But it shouldn't be our primary goal, to Sheila's point. That's what she was saying, is that that shouldn't be our primary goal, because then it's about us. And by the way, if it's about us, what if they don't repent right away? What is that going to make us? It's going to make us angry, make us mad. Don't you know the Bible says this? And then suddenly we lose all the patience that we're called to have, right? But if it's not about us, if it's not about um, an apology, what is it that God wants to accomplish through our relationships? What does he reveal to us in that? What's up? Good. He wants to uh, see forgiveness. Good. What are some other... So reconciliation would be one example, right? What are some other things that God wants to accomplish in our relationships? Yes. Unity. Unity. Good. What else? Mm-hmm. Teach you patience. Yeah, teach you patience. Absolutely. Good. And holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness. God intends to use our confrontation to help each other grow in Christ-likeness. Like that is... That is his expressed intention with us is to conform us into the image of his son. Hannah. Good. Yeah, so whenever you're confronted, uh, it, it makes you humble. It brings you to 
humility like David was when he was confronted by Nathan. Uh, It also hopefully will grow the humility of the person doing the confronting as well to help them realize with a right heart, I'm not better than this person. I just need to help them, okay? So another thing, reason with this, that we have, should have the right goals is this reality in your outline that we all need the ministry of loving, honest rebuke. And here's a few reasons why it says we need the ministry of loving, honest rebuke. The first is the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, we talked about this in Hebrews in the past where we need to like protect each other from getting hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We established, and you can answer this question, can Christians become hardened by sin? Yeah, yeah. Now, God ultimately will not allow that person to be hardened unto condemnation, but they can fall into sin for long periods of time, completely with their conscience just seared and cut off from the reality that they're sinning. And so because of the deceitfulness of sin, I, you, we need the ministry of loving, honest rebuke. Another thing, another reason that we need the ministry of loving, honest rebuke is because of wrong and unbiblical thinking. Have you, as a Christian, ever suffered with wrong and unbiblical thinking? You have? That's embarrassing. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yes, all of us have. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah absolutely discipleship yeah um a conversation came up uh, among someone me and uh, me and a brother a theological can someone belie- not believe that jesus was sinless and still be a christian and our impulse is to say no way jose there's no way that somebody could be a christian and not know that jesus is sinless but let me tell you about a christian who believed that the man who was born blind and was healed of his blindness he says these words in the bible whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know, okay? So it is possible for you to, when you're saved, have some completely unbiblical and, and wrong thinking. Now, if someone were to teach that man, I, I would hope that he would be like, oh, okay, good, that makes sense, praise God. So a, a Christian is also teachable from the word of God. And if, so, if that man were to persist in saying, no, Jesus is a sinner, even with rebuke, even with church discipline, then at some point we have to say, we're not gonna treat this person as a brother until he repents. But the point is, as Christians, we can have wrong thinking. We can have unbiblical thinking. And that's why we need confrontation, loving, honest rebuke. Another, thing, another reason that we need the ministry of loving and honest rebuke is because of emotional thinking. Can emotions distort good thinking? Yeah, they absolutely can, which is why we need, again, someone to confront us with the word, with a loving and an honest way. And then also, the next on the list is my view of life, i.e. God, self, others, the solution. They tend to be shaped by my experiences. So we all bring biases into a situation, our past, our experiences. And so because we do that, we need people to help us be loving and be honest and to bring the word of God to bear on us so that we wouldn't look at it on our experiences but based on the word of God. We have two goals, two goals when it comes to confronting someone, when it comes to how they see things. The first goal is to be an instrument of seeing. We all are seeing things incorrectly sometimes, 
but we help each other as instruments of seeing to show people what the Word of God says about a situation, right? The second goal is to be an agent of repentance, not only to see what the Bible says, but also to help them to walk in it, right? So those are our goals when we're confronting people. Joel 2, verses 12 through 13, uses the language of rending the heart, not the garments. So in other words, people would grieve over their sin and they tear their garments, but then they would not repent, right? So we we need to rend the heart, not the garments. That's the kind of uh, repentance that God is looking for. Our next section, which is very important, don't leave the gospel at the door. Don't leave the gospel at the door. We can tend to do this. Bring God's law to bear on people. God says, don't do this. You need to stop doing that. Okay, good. You stopped doing it. Good job. On to the next thing, right? That could be our tendency. But look, God uses the law and the gospel. He uses the law and the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.14 talks about how the love of Christ compels us to live for him. His love does. His kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. So we need to bring the gospel. How can the gospel confront somebody in their sin? I'm talking about a Christian. How can, you, how can the gospel confront someone in their sin? Yeah, like if somebody is sinning and you, and you share the gospel with them, how could that actually like make them repent? Okay, good. So in talking about what Christ paid for, it, it shows them that they're not as holy as they are. Good. How else? Yeah, Julian. And then Sheila. Mm-hmm. Amen. So Julian said, it was, it was my sin that, that the Son of God became man, as we're going to be talking about today, and die on the cross for me. It's because, of that sin. it's because of the sin that you're doing right now that Jesus died. And that hopefully will soften somebody to not want to sin anymore, right? Um, you, anyone who knows, like, when I'm helping them with sin, I, that I use flashcards personally, and I try to prescribe that to people, right? Flashcards of reminders of things, um, biblical concepts, so that if they're feeling tempted to sin, they bust out these flashcards and they go through them. Now, let's say that somebody is struggling with, uh, what's up? In a flash. And go with them in a flash. That's right. Oh, that's why they call them that. Anyway, um, let's say they're struggling with uh, anger. And all you have in these flashcards are, you know, be angry and do not sin, um, put away wrath, and you have all these law, 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 law. For a Christian, that could absolutely help them to stop being angry, but there's other cards in there that talk about how God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't treat you as your sins deserve, right? That, could that also help somebody with their anger? Absolutely, absolutely. So you, as we're helping people, we're not just having the law well, you need to also help them to remind them about God's love for them. We need to promise them, or rather help them to see God's promise, that if they repent, that God will forgive them. That they, God promises that if anyone sins, uh, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Right? 
Romans 8, 1 through 17 is helpful here. Romans 8, 1 through 17. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Amen. Right. Sheila said that oftentimes when we're evangelizing, we think that the law is only for evangelism. That once they're Christian, they no longer need to feel the weight of the law. But no, the law of God also, you said, converts the soul, right? It refreshes the soul. It, so we need, we need the law as well. We need to hear God's law as well. Romans 8, 1 through 17 has a good balance of this. And we'll, this is kind of our last thing we'll look at. I'm just going to read all of the verses of Romans 8, 1 through 17. But remember, the context of this is Romans 7, where Paul is anguishing over this fact where, man, everything I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. Who is going to save me from this body of flesh? And then he says in verses 1 through 17, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children than heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But praise the Lord. I'm going to just rapid fire explain this because we only have a couple minutes left, okay? But the first thing is, when he's talking about the Christian struggle with sin, the first comfort he provides in Romans 8 is the gospel. If you're in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. In other words, you, you no longer need to obey the law in order to be justified in God's sight, okay? So you have this comfort of the gospel. Your sentence of condemnation has been removed. And by the way, you wanna not make the error 
to think that everyone in this church knows the gospel very well. You don't want to not make that error. In other words, you need to help each other with the gospel. Remind them, teach them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? There's also the comfort of the Holy Spirit, or rather, the fact that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Not only are your sins forgiven, brothers and sisters in Christ, but God himself dwells in you to work out in you that which is pleasing in his sight. That's another comfort that's in this passage. And then after this comfort, this comfort that's given to us, that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then there is this call to eradicate sin. Okay? He doesn't just leave it there. You're struggling with sin? Don't worry. You're forgiven. You're a Christian. He does say that. But then he also says in verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? So there's a call here. You need to put sin to death. But that, that eradication of sin, the mortification of sin, is rooted in this great hope that we have, that if you're in Christ, you're not condemned. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God working in you, working this out in you. And ultimately, here's what we're doing. When you're confronting someone, if they're a Christian, if they're a Christian and you're confronting someone, you're essentially encouraging their new natures with the gospel. They are new. They love the Lord. They want to obey him. And confrontation is simply encouraging people with their new natures to do just that. Amen? So let me pray and ask God to help us with these things. Lord, you know our frames, and therefore you are very merciful for us when we have chosen not to confront someone because even, even though we should, because of our comforts and because we've idolized relationships or whatever else may be getting into the way. And Lord, because you know our frames, you're merciful towards us with this. And yet you also called us today to have these loving, confronting conversations and relationships that are marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not by anger and not by strife or division. You've encouraged us from your word today, and we pray that you would help us to actually live it out. Help us to be loving and truthful. Uh, help us to be gracious and truthful. That, that is the nature in which your son came, full of grace and truth. And so we ask that ourselves would also be operating by your spirit in grace and truth. Lord, if there are conversations that you're convicting people today that must be had, we pray that you would put a rock in their shoe and that you would not let them to be comfortable with a lack of confrontation until it's actually resolved. Lord, do this not for our glory, but for yours and yours alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.